Hey there, Brainiacs, and welcome to episode four of Brainwaves, Vivid Cortex's podcast series where we talk about topics related to databases, data management, technology startups, and engineering in general. My name is Alex, and I'm one of your hosts. Today, I'm joined by two very special guests. The first is Jay Ennis, Vivid Cortex's VP of Product Development, calling in from Phoenix, Arizona, and Baron Schwartz, our founder and CEO, talking to us from our home office in Charlottesville, Virginia. How's it going, guys? Uh, this is Jay, and just another end of a busy week at a growing company. And here in Charlottesville, it's, it's great. We've just moved up to a new office space, and I'm looking out the window and just really enjoying things. Yeah, I'm excited to see that, that space. I haven't gotten a chance to come by the new office yet, so that's very exciting. Oh, it's nice, yeah. Cool. Well, awesome to have you guys. Uh, today's show is called How to Replace a Wing in Midair and Other Development Safety Tips. And we're going to talk about how to engineer, build, and run systems with safety in mind. Uh, at Vivicortex, we apply these principles mainly to software development, but there are many rules and logical shortcuts we can borrow and steal from other disciplines. That's what today's show is about. For example... Borrowing and, and stealing, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, hopefully uh, stealing with permission, if, if that's a thing. But... Um, Spoiler alert, Jay is actually a licensed commercial pilot, and I know he has some uh, especially powerful axioms he's borrowed from aviation and applied to computer engineering uh, as it applies to our team. And in short, even though software development is a relatively new field, it has plenty in common with other industries, and we can learn a lot through careful observation, especially when it comes to building for safety. So Baron and Jay, let's start with the very basics. What are we talking about when we say safety in the context of software development and delivering a service? Uh, what do you need to achieve in order to say your system is built for safety? Well, the first thing that comes to mind for me is making sure that you're not relying too much on humans taking the right action at the right time and potentially under pressure. Uh, a lot of things that we do, we, we really uh, you know, depend on uh, just, just one person. And just one person uh, that may not have complete information, may have a biased perspective about uh, the, the situation they're looking at and you know, hoping that they're going to do the right thing. And, and that's, that's really the wrong way to engineer. So for me, um, I think of this a lot in terms of the, the times when I myself have done something um, or have had something happen to me in the past. And... I know this is going to be a familiar feeling for a lot of people who have run production systems. And you have that moment when you kind of realize what you're seeing in front of you on the screen, like the, the log line scrolling up the terminal. And, um, you know, it, it, it can, <laughs> people have talked about literally passing out um, and, uh, and sort of waking up on the floor after the shock of seeing what they've just done. Um, you know, and so, uh, you read a lot about the various kinds of incidents that people firefight and so forth. I have a tremendous amount of empathy for that because I've done some of those things myself. And um, a lot of times you really get the sense that, um, although well-intentioned, the system's design ultimately sabotaged the person. Um, and of course, the person was well-intentioned as well. And then there's this whole set of things that just cascade from that, which, you know, it's, it's not exactly on topic, um, the question that you just asked. But... For me, it's really about trying to figure out how the system could sabotage a well-intentioned person operating under pressure, perhaps only with partial familiarity um, um, and partial context. 
and you know just just like have you built things in there that can cut people's fingers off and maybe even they're legitimately experiencing panic i mean i don't know if you know you or the other people on this call have literally experienced panic to the point that they they realize that they're not thinking uh it, it is completely debilitating but there, there are multiple yeah. stages of that and you have to recognize that people are experiencing some degree of that in some of these situations yeah, I, I can think of times when I've done things like, um, you know, destroying a production system. And um, I was sort of observing my mind as one does, you know, particularly um, I'm a fan of mindfulness training. And uh, it's, it's really a process of just observing how your mind works. And I recognized that my mind was, in some sense, altering its mode of operation. And I've certainly been at people's elbows when they were you know, flipping out and uh, you, you recognized that, uh, you know, they, they were sort of having the mental equivalent of a blue screen of death. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't experienced that myself. I've experienced kind of, you know, going towards that, but, um, you know, definitely seen other people. You know, it's interesting. We didn't actually uh, talk about this as part of our show notes as we we're getting ready for today's episode, but we're very quickly recognizing that even though we're talking about computer engineering and software development, when we're talking about safety, it's not, it's not just a metaphor. We're really talking about people's personal health. Um, what your example, Baron, of people actually passing out on the floor and experiencing panic attacks and that sort of thing. It's not just safety in terms of uh, making sure the system doesn't break, but it really has as a, a human element involved. Yeah, that's, that's right. And, um, you know, we were just talking about panic and um, I was talking about sort of the mental processes as, as panic comes on, um, of which I am not, by the way, you know, there are many people in the world much more qualified to speak about what's actually going on. Uh, but there's biological processes too. I mean, I remember um, at, when I was a consultant and I uh, destroyed um, my consulting clients' uh, production operations, my mind was actually working fine, uh, but my body reacted in such a way that I felt my blood pressure drop and I did physically sit down on the floor and start to feel the onset of shock. You know, I started to feel chills and sweating and lightheadedness and things like that. I was thinking clearly through it, but my body, and, and I was like, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be fine. And my body was like, no, you're not. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I wonder if we I, need I to talk about PTSD. Uh, yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. maybe a future episode is PTSD in the world of computer engineering. Um, but this this is very quickly getting to one of the the big points we talked about uh, wanting to discuss today, which is the idea that software development safety isn't just about building automated processes that are reliable, consistent, observable. We're talking about there being a consideration of the human element. So what are some of the ways that those, those two things kind of work in tandem, both the systems and the people who use them? So I think far too often we think about human factors in, in computers as being you know, just something that you, you do for the user interfaces. And it really, it, it happens at, at so many different levels. And if you look at other industries and you know, other places where technology gets deployed, there are so many different ways that people have come up with uh, you know, to sort of do this. You know, one example that, that I like to think about that I was always incredibly impressed with when I saw in, a, uh, in sort of a, a factory situation, which was the concept of electrical lockouts. Have you guys ever seen these things? Yeah, yeah. The idea is that when 
you've got people who are working on live or potentially live electrical circuits. You need to shut these things off and make sure that they stay shut off. But the problem is you've got multiple people who are working in these environments and any one of them can say, oh, you know, why is the power off? I need to go turn this thing back on. And so they create these devices that, that you can clamp around, you know, something that disables electrical power and each person working on it has their own padlock. And until all the padlocks are removed, you can't turn the power back on. I mean, that... Yeah, and there's a similar, um, you know, I, I grew up on a farm um, and we didn't do any of this, although I later saw it in other contexts. Um, my scoutmaster was, um, actually two of my scoutmasters worked for uh, the power plant. And uh, so I saw that when I went on tours of the power plants with them, I saw each of them with their own keys and they explained how this stuff worked. And I was thinking about the ways that we worked on the farm equipment um, you know, the, and I know there are people who do work on farm equipment with physical lockouts. Um, you know, so when, when, you've, when you're underneath a machine working on the power takeoff shaft and someone else decides to drive the tractor away, um, I mean, I, I've seen those kinds of things happen on a farm because on the farm you just get your tools out and go to work, right? I mean, that's kind of the culture in the farm. Um, but it's, it's not always that way. You know, there are certainly physical devices in many um, similar circumstances, like when they're using tractors in um, the, the context of a power plant or, a, you know, electrical operations, those kinds of things, they do lock off things that have power takeoff shafts. And, um, you know, I've physically seen those things and, and thought, we should have those on the farm. Of course, by that time, I was actually, you know, moving away from the farm and into a new phase of my career. But so would you say that these, these safety precautions uh, largely exist to eliminate variability? Is, is that an accurate summation of, of what the goal of these, of these human system precautions are about? So I think we're trying to foresee as much as possible what could go in various unanticipatable ways. Um, and by automating something, we're taking sort of the known good path. We're we're thinking about the known ways that we anticipate or we've experienced that things can go off the rails. And we're trying to avoid somebody having to remember and think about all of those things in a time of stress when something else is breaking that potentially wasn't considered in this context at the time that you built the system. Um, and everything, so for example, a, an Ansible deployment script, you know, it usually automates the happy path scenario. We're going to turn on the machine. We're going to, you know, install some yum packages. That's going to succeed. After that succeeds, we're going to change the configuration file, which of course is going to exist, and you know, so so forth and so on. Um, and then we have some kind of a, a, a tense situation, and the person is trying to spin up a new uh, machine to replace something that's failed. And maybe the reason that it's failed is that it is also a reason that would cause the yum package not to install on the, the replacement machine. And so they run the script and the script can just can sabotage them because it was assumed, you know, it was, it was built assuming that all of these happy path scenarios would work. Um, in the best of cases, it can remove a lot of thinking from uh, the person who is kind of under pressure and limit the, the surface area of the problems that they have to solve which is enormously helpful. You know, there's nothing better in a crisis scenario than 
clicking the button or issuing the command and then being able to just take your hands off the keyboard and breathe for a, a couple of seconds while the thing does its work. Um, and so what you hope is that you've considered enough of those kinds of things um, that it, it actually will work and be an aid rather than sort of the, the DevOps Borat scenario where DevOps is uh, you know automating the destruction of everything <laughs> in a for loop. Yeah, I, I'm a bit on, on the, the other end of that spectrum. I, I feel like you really have to provide people with some things that they can rely on in a bad situation. And I think to Baron's point, sure, if you create uh, you know, godlike automation, uh, you're asking for trouble. But if you create you know, simple tools that have very few uh, things that they depend on to be able to work, uh, that can give the operator the edge they need uh, as opposed to making them you know, need to go out and carry out a bunch of manual and tedious steps that all have huge consequences if you get them wrong. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I remember reading an article a few years ago about, um, it's not exactly related to safety or development in any way, but it was about um, automated chess playing platforms and the fact that this experiment showed that pairing a human with a moderately powerful chess program could consistently beat the very best human players and the very best uh, computer players, sort of showing that that marriage between the human ability for judgment with the uh, more automated analytical side of things was the best solution overall. And I remember reading that uh, whenever I did several years ago, really had a big impact on me that automation and completely systematizing everything and taking things out of uh, human hands altogether is not the sort of godlike solution that um, it might seem at first. Well, the, the aviation yeah, which raises a good question of, um, sorry, Jay, uh, you know, do we, who do we consider to be the primary actor and who is the sidekick in this case? Yeah. You know, is the human uh, doing things and getting a little bit of an assist from automation, or are we automating things and then subjecting them to human supervision? Yeah. I think it's a, a really interesting question. Don't get me started on that that aspect of it, but the, the aviation industry has been confronting this a lot in recent years because so much more of flying planes has become about automation, and there have been you know, quite a few high-profile accidents uh, related to that in the in the past 10 years or so. One of the things that the training has really started to focus on in the past couple of years has been on de-automating uh, in, in a situation of crisis. So actually teaching people you know, that there are different levels of automation that are appropriate for different phases of flight and different phases of stress and um, and you know knowns and unknowns so when you're in cruise flight and everything is going fine it's absolutely correct to be completely automated relying on you know an autopilot and uh, auto throttles and and other things but when you start to lose situational awareness when you start to get into those levels where you're you know situations where your your your, your thought processes and your panic is are, are starting to take over uh, relying on automation is probably not what you want to do, or at least the most advanced kinds of automation. You want to go to the more more basic things. So uh, some planes, uh, actually the plane I fly, has this blue button, uh, and it's it's basically the, the, the dummy button. You push this blue button, and within reason, the plane will start to fly straight and level, and just reduce the level of, uh, you know, 
of things that you have going on and get you back to a place where you can recover. So Jay, is that related to the, uh, the safety precautions about flying at different altitudes in different directions? Um, I know this is something you wanted to talk about. Actually, it's a little bit different. That's sort of designing systems in which when everything goes wrong and you know, all the people participating uh, you know, maybe aren't operating at peak, at peak efficiency, that the outcome is still a good one. And so what, what people may not realize is that when all those planes are up there flying around on a, on a nice sunny day, uh, you know, they're not all talking to air traffic control who's telling them where to go and what altitude to fly at. They're controlling themselves, but they're following a, a set of very basic rules. And the, the rule that, that governs uh, that visual flight and keeps people out of trouble is that when people are flying towards the east, they are flying at odd altitudes. And when they're flying to the west, they're flying at even altitudes. And the result is that you don't have planes that are coming at each other at the same altitude at a very high rate of speed and can't really see each other and react to it. So this very basic rule that everybody is taught and everybody just plans around says that even if the pilots don't happen to see each other, they're not likely to hit each other. And I would imagine that the, 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 the blue button, even though it doesn't necessarily change the altitude you're flying at, by helping you stay level, it helps the humans implement this, this system that they've been taught, this very basic, simple idea of odd versus even. Well, so there's almost like a little bit more about just recovering from a bad situation. Um, okay. I mean, I, I hope people never experience it, but when a plane gets out of control, it's very disorienting. Uh, you, you might have seen you know, pictures of planes spiraling, spiraling down and what you see out of the cockpit is very disorienting. And so this one simple button, this one basic tool uh, will put things back at a level that you can carry on from there after you maybe change your underwear. Sure. And I mean, I'm sure it's impossible to really imagine uh, what it's like to go through that. But um, I think we can all kind of extrapolate what, uh, what happens when safety measures go wrong when it comes to aviation. But to bring this back more to I, mean, I, I would give an example, though. I mean, imagine if we applied the same kind of thing to operations. Imagine if we sure. had a, a, a case where a system was falling apart, but we had a blue button that we could push, and it, it would go to a, a known state which provides uh, minimal but acceptable behavior to all of your customers. It, it's a place to start over from. Yeah, and, and we do build that into a lot of systems, you know, graceful degradation. Uh, there may be systems that are kind of gingerbread around your main functionality, um, such as, you know, something that appears in the sidebar on your e-commerce site or something like that. Um, you know, the core functionality is uh, whatever's required for people to give you money, but there may be special offers or something like that that appear in the sidebar. And under conditions of um, high load or things going wrong, when you need to conserve your resources for making sure that the revenue stream stays as unimpaired as possible, there's a technique called load shedding. And you can just shut down a bunch of, if, if you design the systems this way, you can shut down a bunch of functionality. Um, and uh, th th that's very common. And what does it look like when the safety measures really go wrong. Um, what, what, Baron and Jay, uh, do you guys look for 
to as signs that that the safety measures that you've put in place for the development team are not working or what you what you're afraid of seeing if the if the measures fail well a couple of years ago i would get paged you know uh whenever anything was going wrong but we've grown past <laughs> that point and so what it looks like today is when i get a text message that says can you help <laughs> which uh, fortunately happens very very infrequently these days um, but it hasn't been long since I've been out of the thick of that. And when things go wrong, um, you know, the, the, what I see is that on the chat channel um, or in the room where we're discussing these things, people are, people are basically looking at each other and asking, what should I do? Um, who knows about this? Um, does, do, do, what, what situation, like what, what systems are we supposed to be you know, so-and-so is on vacation and they're the only one, they, they're the one who built this and maybe they, maybe we can call them up um, and find out like what, what's going on. We see this in the log files, but we don't know how to interpret it because we don't know the code, those kinds of things. Um, so that's where I see us kind of getting into the danger zone. And um, you, you can just sort of tell that uh, we're getting to the point where we may be making decisions with very limited information that could have unanticipatable consequences. And when those things happen, um, I, I, I imagine the, the first reaction people have afterwards is to ask why or whose fault it is. Um, yeah. What is, is, is that a helpful reaction? Is that the right way? I know a lot of people have written a lot about this idea of root cause and about postmortems and the ideal way to carry them out. What are your thoughts on those? Yeah, I think we're going through a bit of a cultural transformation on that right now. Um, companies and, and people who are seen as kind of being on the leading edge of this often refer to learnings from other disciplines, um, whether it's financial trading or you know um, air traffic safety, things like that. Um, where we are at the moment is I think we're in a middle ground between the, um, the old culture where we had to do a, a, an after-action review or post-mortem or something like that and get to the root cause and um, take steps to prevent that root cause from recurring again. And it sounds kind of noble on the face of it, um, but in reality, a, a lot of times it backfires um, and it turns into victimizing people who are already victims and not ultimately solving the, the chain of conditions that led to this. And so one of the things is recognizing is that there's no single root cause. Um, that is a cultural myth. Um, you know, there's, there's still a lot of companies who do believe in root cause analysis and where RCA is a, a well-known three-letter acronym. Uh, but fortunately, I think we're moving past that into a little bit more nuanced understanding of that. But yeah, um, you know, afterwards, when, when somebody tries to assign blame and the, the politics get brought into full display, uh, it can get pretty ugly. But you, you talk about this, though, that we're, we're making a, a conscious transition. And I, I think that we're trying to, but the thing that we're fighting against here is, is human nature. You know, so many aspects of wanting problems to be the result of a single cause is, is human nature. Uh, you know, wanting to be able to assign blame is, is something that is probably in the, in the human soul. So, you know, we've got a lot to fight to, to, to change this. And organizations that do usually start to, to call it something other than a post-mortem and usually uh, start with things like simply trying to understand what happened and using it a very evidentiary way of going about it. 
that's something that we do internally. And I, I wouldn't begin to say that we're experts at it. Uh, we have our own cultural challenges that, uh, you know, that we're, we're trying to adapt to. But so far, what we found is that focusing on the evidence and making it an analysis like you, you do any other kind of analysis is a, a really rewarding process. Yeah, that, that's true. Um, you know, trying to interpret the facts, and, and it's very tempting to do that because there's an emotional drive for certainty, clarity, simplicity. It's just finality. A, a, yeah, a comfort that we emotionally long for. Um, but in search of that, it's very tempting, um, and, and probably, as you mentioned, human nature, to look for these simple answers. And instead of saying what happened, um, you know, questions come up like, why didn't you X or, you know, the, the question why starts to be asked. It's a very, very dangerous line to walk. Yeah, a, a better question in that situation might be, what was going through your mind? What were the facts that you had at your disposal? You know, these, these are all things that you can reverse engineer. Why is a very human sort of uh, thing, and there's a certain amount of random, randomness to it that you have to accept that, you know, two people given the same information in the same situation are not going to react the same way each time. That's right. And, and there's, um, we didn't talk about this when we were sort of preparing for this, but I used to be... Um, uh, not a paramedic, help me out here, EMT. EMT. I used to be an EMT. <laughs> that was a long time ago, as you can tell. And uh, there, was this, uh, there was this thing called the standard of care, if I recall correctly. And, and basically, the way that we talked about it in the EMT training classes was that you might be subject to um, a review after the fact to determine if you had behaved appropriately in the circumstance. And the judgment that was going to be uh, measured against you was, would... Uh, a reasonably informed, well-trained kind of uh, person making good decisions have acted as you did. And it sounded, at the time, it sounded like a good standard to apply. Um, but as the years have passed, I've learned that it, it's almost, uh, it's almost booby-trapping. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. as, as I'm listening to you guys talk, I'm thinking if we have these systems, these systems for automation, um, for example, Jay, I, I don't know if this example makes sense, but for just the sake of uh, the thought experiment, I think it, it works. In the case of the aviation, the two planes flying at different altitudes, if that's a rule that's, that you've been inundated with from the beginning of flight school, if you find yourself in a situation where all of a sudden you know it, it's, it's going to fail you, if you know that there's a plane coming at you at exactly the same altitude, I don't know how you would know this, but let's say you did, and yep. it would serve your interest to break the rule and you know deviate from the system that you've been trained to act inside of this automated yep. uh, social or aviational system. Of yep. course, you should deviate from it. So as, as I'm listening to you talk, Baron, about this idea of um, the EMT kind of structured uh, way to comport yourself, at what point are you asking people to kind of turn away from the systems and the automation and the rules that have been set up, and that's that's a really hard question. I mean, this we could unpack this and you know get uh, incredibly philosophical and apply this to cultural norms and things like this. But how much can an organization or a software development team ask their team members to not only work inside of the automated systems and rules they've set up, but also ask them to be responsible for recognizing when those systems are worth uh, 
putting aside for for the right. moment or whenever and how, how do you assign responsibility for those things that's right like we, we you know we created a playbook for how to recover a failed server in a cluster and uh, somebody didn't run by the playbook um, and so then the questions become a well, why you know we we wrote these procedures for a good reason uh, so that's that's kind of one perspective on it and then the other is well, if we didn't write any playbooks, then we're asking people to just exercise nothing but judgment, knowledge, experience uh -huh. constantly, right? Uh -huh. So the playbooks are really there, as we were talking about earlier, to, to kind of encapsulate that we've agreed upon. These are, these are sort of defaults that can be deviated from. But we still, I, I think we still need to operate with the assumption that everybody is bringing their experience uh, to bear. You know, you, you, you can't just be a person pushing the buttons, not knowing what the button does. Yeah. The aviation equivalent to this is that the rules do recognize that the uh, the pilots in the cockpit are the ones that are going to arrive at the scene of the accident first, and so they really should be the ones that that have the ultimate authority over the safety and the outcome of that flight. So while there are lots of rules, effectively guardrails that they are operating in within, you know, their 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 everyday normal operation, uh, at the the end of the day. Uh, it's up to them to make the right decision based on the information that they have in front of them and, and using their experience. And the, you know, the, the rules accept that. Now, you may find yourself having to explain why you chose that way, and they may find that you, poor, you chose poorly. But, but that is the rule that, that you end up following. And I think in an operation sense, it's important we trust our people as well, that, you know, that, we, you know, that they know that... Uh, uh, they have the best information available to them, not somebody you know using hindsight. And uh, what, what's the name of the bias for uh, uh, for hindsight? It's uh, well, there's hindsight bias. <laughs> I thought there was a more official name for it. <laughs> yeah, there's a, a whole bunch of uh, biases I think that would come to play here. So. I guess to flip this conversation on its head, and the th we've been talking about a lot of things that postmortems should avoid, like uh, the, the ability for the postmortem to recognize um, the way that it sets up traps for people to, to act as scapegoats for organizations. On the flip side, what are some of the things that you do look for in a postmortem? What are some of the things, uh, and, and maybe postmortem isn't the right word for what we're eventually aspiring to get to. But what are some of the things that we would hope to accomplish um, from a postmortem, and how would we apply those things to safety precautions moving forward? I think the most important. So for me, I think the. Sorry, go ahead, Jay. I just say I think the most important thing is to arrive at whatever you call this thing, postmortem or whatever, is with the mindset that you're there to do organi organizational learning. You, know, you have a number of processes. You have a number of systems. And the end result of this is that those processes and systems have to work better and in some cases have to uh, enable or protect humans uh, that are operating those systems from you know, the sort of uh, panic situations and stress situations they may be under when those systems are challenged. Go ahead, Baron. And, and I would say a, a good outcome is true accountability, as in the dictionary meaning of account um, you know, giving an account of, of what actually happened. So really just getting to the facts, just a timeline of what actions were taken. And, and I'm going to say this in the passive voice, um, but what actions were taken, what facts were observed, what results happened. You know, so just a really impartial 
no finger pointing, no kind of assignment of blame or anything like that, but just literally a timeline of the truth of the facts, not no motives, no interpretation or anything like that. Because only by getting a true account of what actually happened can people be accountable. And uh, the, there's processes and systems for running our, um, our, uh, our systems themselves, but there's also, I think, processes um, and culture around understanding, in hindsight, what happened that can work against a good outcome next time. Um, particularly, you don't want th somebody to be thrown under the bus because not only they, but everyone else around them will understand consciously or unconsciously that in the next uh, thing that goes wrong, potentially their neck is on the line um, in potentially an unfair way. And so we want to be really, really careful that we don't just you know, chop somebody's neck off in an after-action review because what will happen if you do that is all of these kinds of consequences of back pressure will build up and you will avoid, uh, you will almost eliminate the possibility of getting to the truth um, because if people understand that the truth is going to hurt them, then they will hide the truth. Then the organization will fail to learn. Then the next thing will happen again and even worse. And it will just be you know, a, a, a deadly spiral that may be very hard to reverse and may, may require significant work on the culture of the organization. Actually, I think that kind of thing is true across every aspect of the organization because there, there are lots of things that aren't you know, organizational failures, uh, but they are maybe even creeping failures. And having people you know, operate within a, a culture where it's important to expose the truth and deal with it, uh, I think permeates a good organization. That's right. I think the most important thing is to know the truth. You know, when you when you know the truth and you have the courage to deal with it, um, to be honest and vulnerable with your teammates and in front of uh, people who are maybe your supervisors and maybe have power over your career in some sense. Um, when that culture is the the foundation, then we can move beyond that into, for example, real commitment. You know, truly, truly being vulnerable with each other, honest with each other, and then that enables uh, a commitment to, to actual change in the future if it's needed. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of Patrick Lancioni's book, um, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Very applicable here. Yeah. Speaking of five, we have a thing that we instituted in our own uh, organization around postmortems, and it's one of the things we use as a, a place to deal with the outcomes. We call it the Fugly Five. And so as we go through a postmortem and we discover what these truths are, we have a place where we can uh, you know, create a short prioritized list of the ones that are most important for us to deal with. So rather than have developers and operations people be harboring these uh, things they know are broken that are going to hurt us in the future, we've got a place that we can come together as a team and say, these are the truths. These are the things that are the, the most dangerous to organization that we have to confront no matter how big they are. Jay, it's interesting you mentioned that. Um... You and I worked on a blog post together about uh, the Fugly Five, but also this other process called Chaos, which uh, is using something called Chaos Monkey to uh, introduce random instances of failure or uh, emergencies within our system in a contained, almost scientific environment, a control space. Well, we so hope our it's team, contained. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> so our team can uh, address those things and learn what parts of our system 
need to be improved uh, if those things were to ever happen in a live environment. I hope I'm explaining that correctly. But oh, you, you are. What's striking me now is really interesting about that process is it's introducing failure in a way that is emphatically not to be blamed on any individual. It's an automated way to introduce that failure so there's no risk of the analysis being clouded by the desire to place the blame on a specific person. It, it yeah. removes that, that element of finger pointing. That's, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, actually, there's another way of looking at it, which uh, I think uh, goes to the, the panic discussion we had, which is by practicing these things, you, you give people the, you know, the, the ability to recognize when maybe panic is setting in, to you know, have some things that they have done in the past that they can fall back on as ways of you know, proven ways of uh, you know, getting past this. So you know, having practiced responses is very important for, uh, well, a pilot for one, but also for someone in operations. So we're, we're talking a lot about, um, about this idea of, of truth within the organization. Baron, especially, you were, you were mentioning this a few minutes ago. Do you guys think that within uh, an organization like Vivid Cortex or any really software development team, is there a single ledger of truth, a single uh, place where you can turn and say this account, this testimony uh, of to what happened is the truth? How how do you construct that narrative that you eventually recognize as the uh, the gospel for the event that that you're trying to analyze? Does that make sense? Statuspage.io. <laughs> <laughs> The hip chat uh, scroll back? Logs, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I think um, a, a lot of it is, is really in a productive team discussion. And I won't pretend that we have this done perfectly. Um, but I think that the things that we publish, um, you know, at times I've recognized that we were avoiding having some of the difficult conversations. And I've, I've basically taken an executive action. Um, this is in Jay's territory now. But uh, before Jay was here, I thought that we were um, suffering from some outages repeatedly because we were failing to discuss them to ourselves and that by forcing ourselves to be transparent about that with customers, we would use that as emotional leverage to hold ourselves accountable. Um, and so I don't remember when this was, but a while ago I, um, I blogged. Uh, we didn't have our, our status page up yet. but. I blogged about um, something that had happened, and I then had a discussion with the team and said, this is the new standard to which we are going to hold ourselves. I don't care how small an incident is. Um, if we think that our customers might be impacted by something, going forward, we are going to tell the world through status page, um, which I was then just setting up, you know, we are going to tell the world that we think something might be wrong and we're looking into it. We are not going to think that something might be wrong, look into it, figure out that it's wrong, and then tell customers that it's wrong. That was getting things in the reverse order and was, and was leading to a lot of things being sort of swept under the rug because, well, I thought something might be wrong. It turned out it was. I hope to, to, nobody noticed, but I fixed it, so we don't need to talk about it. And you know, that, that, was a, that was a bad pattern that we got into. What interesting thing that that has uh, you know, helped us with as we've institutionalized it a little bit more is actually recognizing when something is an incident. You know, when we didn't have this standard for needing to, uh, you know, sort of 
talk about what was going on publicly. I don't know which bias it is, but, but human nature for, for most people was always to, oh, this is not a problem. I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. And as it gets steadily worse. And now we actually have some triggers that are built in so that people can identify, okay, this is impacting customers. What, is the th what are the next things that we need to do because this is impacting customers? One of those things is updating the status page. Another one is if we have someone available to do it, is to actually just start taking notes about what, has, what is happening in the team, what actions people are taking, what conclusions are being made so that as we go back and we look at those hip chat logs and those other things that we can make sense of it in a post-mortem sense. So having processes around these things is incredibly helpful. So to get back to something we were talking about earlier in the episode, this idea of process, um, and, and not to completely pivot, pivot us away from postmortems if, if uh, we have more to say about that, but to get back to some of the ways that we can borrow from other industries uh, about applying these processes, about setting up these semi-automated uh, expectations for how our team should function, um, we came up with a whole, a whole list of different industries and disciplines we could borrow from. So I was wondering if you guys wanted to share a few more examples of those processes that, that you found helpful. The horror stories from our childhoods and so forth. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As I mentioned, I grew up on a farm. Um, and, you know, the, the farm culture and all of the neighbors that I would work with and so forth was very cavalier. Um, you know, I would see people stepping over spinning drive shafts and things like that. And, and nobody else thought anything of it, so of course I didn't. Um, but then, you know, there, there were the people who ended up killed or crushed or wrapped around the drive shaft or, you know, clothes being stripped off of them, those kinds of things. People, more often than not, seem to miraculously survive those things. Um, but as I moved out of the farming environment and into other environments, um, not only did I see a lot, of, uh, a lot of things that I thought, you know, this really could have prevented me from some of those near-death situations myself, um, but they're, they're just really, they don't slow anything down and um, they make things very practically much safer. So one of the things, um, I went and worked in a unionized factory. Um, so I was, you know, spending my graveyard shift, spending my days in college and my nights at the graveyard shift tying knots in Lycra. And everything, it was unionized um, and they were very safety conscious. Um, and it seemed a little bit over the top at first. You know, when there was a door that swung open, there was a circle painted on the floor. And if you stepped inside that circle, if the door opened, it would hit you. And so when somebody stepped inside the circle and someone else saw them do it, they would yell at them and pull them out of there and have a talking. You know? <laughs> and there were, there were just a whole bunch of other things. You know, If you needed to change a light bulb, you had to suit up, you had to glove up, you had to have a helmet on, and you had to have another person also suited and gloved and helmeted standing behind you holding their arms around you on the ladder. You know, if, if, On the farm, if we needed to change a light bulb, we were just swinging from the rafters or whatever. And so as I worked in this environment where basically nothing went wrong, um, I started thinking back to the farm and all the times when, when uh, my brothers or I or my father, you know, we would have these, these very literally near-death experiences where we, we just barely escaped with our lives, luckily. Um, there, there's a lot of stuff that's just really unpredictable in equipment, in nature, in animals, all those kinds of things. And I know... A little while ago, Jay and I were um, having a dinner and talking about horses with another of our team members. So we happen to have some shared experiences with horses and a bunch of that stuff came up too. Jay, do you want to run on there? On horses? Uh, 
Well, I mean, I think our, our discussion over dinner was just uh, my own personal experience with a, a sort of a horse training operation that my family runs, which is, you know, training little kids to, to ride horses. And nothing scares me more than, uh, you know, these uh, small children who weigh, you know, 80 pounds who are hugging on these 1200 pound beasts that operate, uh, you know, not as pets, but as fight or flight type of, uh, type of animals. And they, they operate by instinct. And, um, you know, as I've, I've tried to change this, uh, this organization as much as I can to, you know, keep the kids away from the, the horses and stalls where they can be crushed. And, and it's, it's terrifying. I'm not sure I've got a story there for you, but, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's certainly a safety, safety issue in an industry waiting to happen. Um, I think a better example that I had uh, comes more from the aviation side of things. And it's, it's not a life or death, but it, it does give you sort of an idea of, uh, you know, how human factors really does play a role in the kind of systems that we build. And it's more of a case of embarrassment, happily, than it is, uh, you know, people dying. But uh, when a pilot lands a plane, and they they've got a couple of things that they need to do as they're slowing this thing down from you know 150 miles an hour to a you know 30 miles an hour that they can turn off the runway. And one of those things is typically raising the flaps. Uh, you know, raising the flaps is uh, a switch that's right near the, the pilot's right knee. And it's very similarly shaped to another switch, which raises the landing gear. And for years, one of the things that would happen is a, a plane would, you know, would land, come to a, you know, slow down as it's coming up to the turnoff, and the pilot would raise the landing gear, and there it would sit. Because the, the, the landing gear switch and the flap switch are very similarly shaped, and they're right next to each other in, in older plane designs. So the next thing they did is they moved them apart. And the next thing they did is they gave them different shapes so that you could feel them. And then another thing they did is they, they tied it in so that you can't actually raise the landing gear if there is weight on the wheels. And then you know they found that those switches themselves cause problems. And so they start to analyze the altitude that the plane is at. You know, Is it the altitude of the airport? And so they're just layers upon layers that they keep adding to try and keep people from raising the landing gear while the plane is sitting on the ground. And I remember something in one of my computer science classes, which was led by an aviation safety expert. Uh, one of these safety mechanisms that was put in was uh, to avoid reversing thrust. They, they prevented mm -hmm. <laughs> reversing thrust unless the wheels were on the ground, or I, I forget exactly that, that, what it was. That's exactly but... it. It's called a squat switch. If the, if the plane is squatting on the ground, you can't raise the landing gear. You can't uh, de uh, deploy the reverse thrusters. Um, but some plane, he talked about some plane landing on ice and the wheels weren't spinning because of the ice. And so he couldn't reverse thrust. And, you know, it, it was sort of like, I, I, and I've yeah. had experiences in a car like this, um, where the, I was on gravel and the anti-lock brakes refused, you know, basically went, um, limp and I had no brakes, <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a huge danger of automation. You guys are describing, um, concessions by the engineers who are setting up these automated systems they're they're making concessions to the fact that the humans in the cockpit still need to have control but they need to have control with automated assistance which yeah. i think is really interesting and goes back 
um, to everything we've been saying is it's it's really a balance between helping these systems help you rather than put the entire amount of power in one court or the other. Um, I've, I've just thought of an example of my own, which isn't nearly as uh, unique or kind of uh, exotic as, as the ones you guys are offering. But I live in Washington, D.C. Uh, in a pretty... Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, I uh, won't go into that now. But it's a pretty heavily trafficked urban part of the city. And uh, right next to me is this, this street called 14th Street. Uh, it's a pretty major through fare north-south in the city. And the drivers on the street are just insane. They just make U-turn, U-turns in the middle of blocks, completely illegal. But, of course, the police in D.C. have far better things to be spending their time with, so nobody ever gets ticketed. Um, and it just it, it amazes me every time I cross the street that the traffic lights work as well as they do. And that there's just a common social understanding that when a light is a certain color, you, you don't move your car. Um, and that's, that's a really basic kind of elementary, probably too simple an example, but just the, the, the miraculous fact that my life has not ended because people don't go when the light is red. Um, it's, it's kind of amazing to consider that we are able to live within, within the system. I mean, of course it fails every once in a while and it's tragic and awful. I remember, uh, reading an article. I used to live in New York also. Um, I read an article saying that there was a higher chance of being killed as a pedestrian in New York City if you only cross the street according to the crosswalk signals. However, if you just <laughs> if you actually looked both ways and just crossed regardless of the crosswalk signals when you knew as a human being that it was safe to do so, you were much less likely to be to be hurt or killed. So I don't know. It's, I can believe that. Yeah. It's it, it kind of also falls in line with what we're saying. Cool. So, um, any, any other examples you guys wanted, wanted to talk about? I have tons of stuff that I would love to talk about, but you know, if I may, um, I'm going to say goodbye to our podcast guests, uh, because I have another call that I need to join. Ah. Uh, but why don't you and Jay keep talking without me? Sure. Absolutely. Baron, before you go, um, if any mm-hmm. of our listeners want to find, uh, any of your thoughts, writings, or general social media presence, uh, can you let them know where to look? Oh, yeah. Um, if you can remember how to spell XAPRB, that's my Twitter handle. It's my uh, personal blog. And of course, on the company blog, I've also wrote a lot of stuff there. Perfect. All right. Thanks, Baron. And thank you so much for joining us today. Um, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Enjoy the rest of the conversation. Awesome. Thanks, Baron. So, Jay, um, let's let's keep rolling. Any Any other aspects, uh, examples that you, you want to go over? You know, there was a conversation we were having a little bit ago that uh, I, I did want to mention because there's a part of aviation safety culture, which I think is extremely admirable, um, you know, forward thinking. I'm, I'm frankly surprised that uh, given the, the FAA and, and their uh, punitive nature that this, this is actually out there and it works. But there's this the system that is basically the, the, the akin to a postmortem, and the issue, of course, is that you've got pilots and air traffic controllers and mechanics that are all over the country in you know individual sort of situations where nobody's looking over their shoulder, and they're making mistakes, 
They're encountering safety problems uh, all day long, every day. They're violating rules. And if there was no system to catch that, to, to, to learn from that, a lot of the, uh, the accidents that no longer happen would happen would still be happening. And so this system is called the Aviation Safety Reporting System. And I don't know how it was set up, but it's like the FAA didn't trust itself or somebody didn't trust the FAA. And so it's actually NASA, uh, you know, the, the space people that run the system mm -hmm. for the aviation community. And the way it works is that uh, pilots and mechanics and air traffic controllers have the chance to rat on themselves when they break a rule or when they see a, you know, a safety situation that has occurred. And as long as they report on this themselves within 10 days, what they get in return is they get limited immunity for anything that they did wrong. And so what happens as a result is, I don't know how many reports it is a day, but it's probably hundreds, if not a thousand reports a day come in from people all over the industry about things that are not happening the way that they're supposed to. And NASA, uh, spends their time analyzing this data and making it available to the rest of the community, the FAA and the NTSB, so that they know that this stuff is happening and have the ability to learn from it and improve on it. And I can tell you as a, you know, as a pilot, I've been flying for, uh, I guess, about 14 years now. I myself have filed probably seven or eight ASRS types of reports. And I know commercial pilots who say that they report they report on something you know as often as monthly, so it, oh. it really is a solution. And I'm, I I try to think about ways that I can do that same sort of thing within the the, the companies that I'm part of. I was just about to ask: Is there any uh, equivalent in in the, the software development space of of something like a third party? I guess there's no global regulation for how software development must proceed, so there's really nobody holding organizations accountable well, every day there are more and more regulations and it's, it's not governments typically that are asking for these things but our customers mm -hmm. so we do uh, follow a lot of standards uh, particularly around things like disaster recovery and security and compliance and things like that so that customers know what they're buying they know that we have the processes in place to uh, be able to react to failure and recover from it and learn from it um, Happily, you know, we, we don't have the, the government, uh, you know, watching over our shoulder for most of these things. But if you look at things like self-driving cars and the kind of problems that that might cause and the liability, I think you may find that governments do introduce themselves into certain parts of software. That makes and sense. And it's, it's an interesting, scary kind of world. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully more interesting than scary, although certainly overlap much of the time. Um, yeah, I've never been run down by a self-driving car. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's only a matter of time. Um, yep. So I, I guess I guess to bring this all the way back to Vivid Cortex, our team. What what are some of the things that you're you're hoping to apply in terms of our our own organization's safety measures um, from all of these things that we've talked about? Things that you're hoping to see happen, hoping to continue happen. Um, anything jump to mind? Any, any bottom line takeaways that you would uh, offer as part of this conversation? 
Well, so I mean, I, I come to Vivid Cortex as a strong fan of of automation in operations, and I, I think it probably came across in you know some of my statements earlier in the in the conversation, and. I do agree with people that you have to be very pragmatic about automation when you when you employ it. You you have to know that you are employing it for the cause of good. Uh, that you know you're not making the you're not violating the Hippocratic oath and making the patient worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but at the same time, there are so many things that we do routinely, and the only way to know that we're going to do them routinely right is to give people the tools. So that no matter whether it's 3 a.m. Uh, and they've just been woken up out of a peaceful sleep or it's a Friday afternoon when they're, they're trying to, to get started with their weekend, that they can do these important changes right and leave the system in uh, a known and properly operating state. Um, I, I, I see a lot of inconsistency in the way that we operate our systems today. And that inconsistency uh, just makes it harder for people when they are trying to troubleshoot a problem and recover from something. They don't know the state that the system was in to begin with because we haven't used some of this very basic automation to get it into those kind of states. So, uh, so actually, just having system operating in finite known states is a human factors way of making it easier for systems or customers. Or I'm sorry, employees. Uh, operators to be able to maintain these systems. Yeah, it goes back again to that idea of sort of limiting variables, understanding what is and is not possible within the rules you've set up for the systems. Um, yeah, guardrails. Yeah. Lots and lots of guardrails. <laughs> yeah, lots of guardrails. And the authority to jump over them if you absolutely have to. Yep, crosswalks that you can run out of the way from moving cars. Um, <laughs> and it, it sounds to me, listening to you and Baron, like a really uh, central tenet of what a, a really safe team needs to have is the team needs to operate really selflessly where ego, I mean, ego of course can play a really important role when it helps you solve problems. And, you know, if, if you know you're right, stick by what you know to be the truth. But for the most part, um, the, the selflessness and ego of setting aside the, the your personal feelings for really the the truth and the good of how the system should operate, not to sound too, uh, I don't know, techno socialist or something. I don't know if that's the term, <laughs> but I, does does that sound right to you, Jay? To really be able yeah, to set I, I, aside the individual for the sake of the the whole process. It, it, that's it's a little bit utopian for me. I mean, I I think that there's a, there's certainly a role for ego in a salesperson. And it is, there's really not much of a role for ego in uh, such a community environment as software and operations really have to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really can't afford to have people who uh, want to operate like heroes. And you know, they're the only ones that are going to have the answer. And they're the only ones that are going to save the day. Uh, so we have to make these decisions uh, in, a, in a community. And we specifically look for people in our company that, that feel that way. Yeah, and this this uh, idea of truth and what we're just saying right now, we're getting really uh, you know high level and abstract right now. But when I think of um, really scientific disciplines and the scientific method and everything that you and Baron have said about how to handle postmortems, really brings me back to this idea of uh, a really pure version of the scientific method where you're not 
you're, you're trying to, you might have an hypo hypothesis, but it's just as valuable to be able to disprove the hypothesis as it is to prove it. It is. And, and going forward with that is a whole part of the process. And one of the things that I value about science as, as a, a concept and as a community is it's one of the only community groups where being proven wrong is, a, is considered to be a valuable part of the greater mission. Um, if you mm -hmm. think of all the different places where people uh, associate themselves, most people associate themselves as a way to insulate their ideas and exist within feedback loops. Um, but the scientific community really champions skepticism and analysis and being able to recognize when uh, things aren't as they appear to be. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really key to make sure that the kind of data you are creating and the analysis that you are doing of that data is reviewable. Uh, that you know you can have people reapproach this information and come up with uh, you know at least things that that validate what you said. Uh, and generally, when you let your biases creep in, that's where you get into trouble. And you know the scientific method is is really designed to be able to uh, weed out the biases over time. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully overall, uh, build a safer system. Yep. Cool. So you, you mentioned uh, the scientific method. I, I, I want to know if, if you're going to be at the March for Science uh, on the uh, the 22nd of April. Oh, yes. It's going to be big in D.C. Yep. yep. Have you bought a T-shirt yet? I haven't, although my, my girlfriend has showed me a few options for sale, which are uh, all pretty I, cool. I have to buy my T-shirt as well. It looks like I'm going to be in Phoenix for it. But uh, I... Awesome. <laughs> Cool. Well, thank you, Jay. This has been uh, a great conversation um, and uh, really glad to have both you and Baron able to join for this episode. Um, it's been fun. Yeah, thank you. And, and similar to what I asked Baron, Jay, if, if people want to read um, anything that you have online, more writing or just general social media presence, uh, is there a place they can find you? Unfortunately, Baron keeps me too busy to be able to write anything down outside of work, so... Nope, sorry. <laughs> All right, we'll I'm get you more on the the, uh, the Vivid Cortex blog then. <laughs> cool. Sounds good. All right, well, uh, thank you everybody for tuning in to this week's episode. And if you have any questions or comments, you can send them by email to podcast at vividcortex.com or you can leave them as comments on the Vivid Cortex blog where we post each of these episodes. Uh, Brainwaves is now also available on iTunes where you can find it by searching for Vivid Cortex and subscribing so you get every episode as soon as it comes out. You can also find us on SoundCloud and Overcast.fm. Thanks for tuning in, and stay brainy.